If you will, open your Bibles if you've got a Bible in hand or, or whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, open your Bibles or if you have a device that you can access the Bible on, feel free to turn to John chapter 1. I'm going to read it or you can just follow along on the screen uh, and then trust me as I preach to you. But uh, if you will, hear the reading of God's holy and inspired word from the Gospel of John in the first chapter starting with the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth." May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inspired word. Let's pray as we come to it this morning. Father, we ask that um, as we look at this passage this morning, as we listen to its words, that you would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would clear away all the clutter that sometimes gets in the way of understanding the true message of Christmas. Help us, Lord, to understand you and how much you have loved us. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, this is a family service, so there are some little ones among us. uh, And uh, what I want to encourage you to do is, if they make a little noise or if they move around a little bit, don't worry about that. (laughs) The early church, I think, was uh, household gatherings that had all kinds of children there. I'm sure they cried. They, you know, they. They caused problems. There were older people there. It was a mixed gathering. Well, that's kind of what this is this morning. It's really the the church gathered together. So this passage in the Gospel of John is not often thought of as a Christmas passage. There's no shepherds. There's no angels. There's no Mary and Joseph. There's no stable. There's no manger. There's no, um, no sheep, no camels, no kings from the east. None of those things. So it may not quite feel like a Christmas story, but yet actually it is. It's it's the Christmas story stripped of basically everything except the essential truth. And what we have, I think, is a simple and yet profound, albeit somewhat raw, statement about the incarnation. God literally taking on human flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the, that's the, the central truth 
of this whole Christmas time. It's almost as if John was intentionally kind of stripping everything away. So we would only focus on this one primary idea that God himself was coming into the world, not only to help us understand what this world is all about and what our role is in it, but actually that he was coming to bring us life. This morning I wanna talk a little bit about what what I would call the great mystery of the ages. Uh, Last year, uh, somewhere around this time, just before Christmas, I had spoken, I talked a little bit about um, uh, the incarnation itself. Um, In fact, I mentioned two of the the greatest mysteries in the Bible, and actually I think in fact of of history itself, are both the incarnation and the atonement. The incarnation that God literally could and did take on human flesh the atonement that God himself in the form of Christ literally hung on the cross for us and took all of our sin upon him. We don't really understand either of those two things. We don't understand how it could happen. They're they're, they're mysteries. But kind of the greater mystery that stands behind those two uh, is the fact that God would choose to send his son. That God would choose to love us and therefore take on human flesh, and then literally die a sinner's death. It's really an amazing truth. It should astound us. I think we should react to it emotionally. Uh, even though we don't understand exactly how, how, how it all worked, we, what we do know is that this is a statement that God loves us and he wants us. So what I want to do this morning, uh, for just for a couple of minutes, is, is um, somewhat demythologize uh, the Christmas story. <laughs> so I'm not talking about Joseph Nair and those kinds of things, but I'm talking about some of the other things. Uh, many times I think we, um, we attach all kinds of things to Christmas that many times can, I think, get, get in the way. So first, let me talk about this. There is, and I hope I don't burst anybody's bubbles. I don't think I will. Um, but um, the first thing is that there's really nothing special or magical about this day, or about Christmas Eve for that matter. Um, We don't actually know the date that Christ was born. So though we sing about that Jesus was born this day, we can sing about a holy night, and there was a holy night, and there was a day in which he was born. We actually don't know if it was December 25th or not. In fact, what, what, what we've come to understand is that Presumably, the reason that we uh, set aside this day to worship the Lord and celebrate his birth is not because we know the date, but rather because there were two pagan feasts that were celebrated this time of year in Roman history, back at the time of of Christ's birth. One that celebrated uh, what was called the rebirth of Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun. And literally that birth or that rebirth was celebrated on December 25th. And it was five or four or five days after the winter solstice and it kind of represented the coming back of the sun, the coming back of light and that sort of thing. The other feast was was called the Feast of Saturnalia and it it was a kind of a month-long festival that included feasting and gift-giving and those sorts of things. There was a lot of lights connected to it, that, that sort of thing. So In the late third century, the early church fathers decided, even though they didn't know the exact date when Christ was born, that they would use that date to celebrate 
the birth of Christ. And actually, it was really quite clever because people were going to celebrate those things anyway, or they were going to celebrate at that time. And what, what, what the early church fathers did is they redirected the celebration of paganism to actually the truth. So the reason we celebrate Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, is not because we know, but it's actually because you know, we are, we're replacing those pagan feasts with that which is really true. And it may be that he was actually born at, during the wintertime. It may be that he was born you know, about nine months after we celebrate Easter or three months before we, 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 we celebrate it. We don't really know, but it's, it's okay. We actually make this day holy because we set it aside to worship the Lord God. Okay. Second, many of the things that we associate with, with Christmas are traditions that come much later. Many of them just over the last several centuries, maybe four centuries or so. So things like Christmas trees, and I like Christmas trees, wreaths, holly, you know, a lot, a, a lot of those, those kinds of things, lights, snow, sleigh bells, Silver bells, you know, all, all, those kind of, all those kinds of things. They're great things, but they really don't have much, if anything, to do with Christmas. And neither, by the way, does Santa Claus and all the other things that goes with Santa Claus, okay? Uh, now, those things, I think, can be enjoyed in a certain number of ways. Some people will object. We shouldn't celebrate. We shouldn't use any of that kind of stuff. It, it clutters it up. I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, some of them actually fall into the class of redeeming pagan traditions, just like the early fathers were trying to redeem that feast and that celebration day, you know, way, way back when. But the, the problem only comes when those things actually take the place of the celebration of the birth of Christ and the truth that, is, that, it, that it should amaze us, that literally... God would take in on human flesh in order to redeem us. So I want to just focus on that story briefly, the story that John tells. And what John does is he takes us back to the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. First, what John does here is he, the word that's used for a word in this text is actually the Greek word logos, or some people will say logos, but logos is, is, is a word. And uh, what, what John was doing is he was really borrowing a term from Greek philosophers to try to get at the reality of who Jesus really was, and I think to communicate to those that he was expecting would read this gospel, this account of the life of, of, of Jesus Christ. Near the end of the book, by the way, John actually states the reason why he wrote his gospel. And it very explicitly it says, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I don't know if you've ever read the gospel of John that way, but really what the gospel of John is, it's an argument that is trying to move you from understanding Jesus as merely a human being to actually understanding him as the Son of God who would, who would die for us. If you've never read the gospel that way, I would encourage you to go back and reread it in, in, in that way. And John sets us up for that whole thing with his kind of prologue where he talks about Jesus being the logos. So Plato and the Greek philosophers, they use that term logos to describe what they believed uh, it was the organizing and controlling principle of the universe. 
the divine wisdom manifest in creation and the ongoing government of the world. Now, they didn't have a whole lot of definition as to what or who that logos was, but they did believe there had to be something that put it all together. There had to be something that held it all, all, all together. And what John is doing in this text is very similar to what the apostle Paul did on Mars Hill or, or at the Areopagus when he had gathered with, the, with the, the, uh, the Greek philosophers there. What he had what, what he'd observed is as he was coming into Athens, there was, the, the, the Greeks were so religious, there was even a, um, a shrine to an unknown God. They wanted to make sure they didn't miss anybody. So what Paul does is he grabs a hold of that unknown God concept and he says, let me tell you who that unknown God is. And he describes him as the God of the universe. The God has created everything that is. He's the one that actually holds all things together. Now, when he begins to talk about the resurrection, the, all of a sudden the Greek philosophers weren't, weren't quite as interested. But what John is doing here is he's taking the Greek idea of the logos and he's personalizing it. And he's saying, let me tell you what that organizing principle is. Let me tell you what that controlling idea is. Let me tell you about the reason that holds all things together. Let me tell you about the one who actually created all that is. Let me, let me tell you, that is Jesus Christ. That's essentially his argument here. So what John does is he identifies a logos, the logos as that, uh, who, that thing or that, that person that was with God. He actually was God, and he is the one that created all, all, thing, all things that are, that, that are. And then what he does early in the text here is he literally personalizes it because he says he, in reference to the word, identifies the Logos as a personal being. He was in the beginning with God. And that's a statement both, both about the eternality of, of Jesus Christ, that he was there at the very beginning, but it's also a statement that he is the one that holds everything together that is. And then his argument culminates in verse 14 where he literally says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I'm sure this is where some of the readers would say, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I, can, if I can believe that. And then the argument begins about Jesus, the one from Nazareth. So then after that, so, so the, his argument is this, that he, Jesus, is that logos. Then he goes on to talk about, John describes Jesus as the light of the world. And it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we know that Jesus was literally the giver of physical life in all creation. Uh, we believe that he spoke things into being. That's how life came, uh, came to be. Again, we don't have a scientific explanation of that. We just have a statement of, of that's, that is how things uh, uh, took place. So Jesus was the giver of, 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 li of physical life in all of creation. I'm not too sure that this statement is actually about much about the physical life part. I think what John is, is saying is that Jesus gives us or gives mankind a reason to live, a life worth living, a fullness of life. Um, elsewhere in scripture, we're told that uh, 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 Jesus is the one who literally um, brings life to us. Even in this passage, he says the same thing. But it's not just life, it's, it's, the, it's this life that, that is full, this life that animates it gives you a reason to live, those kinds of things. 
couple weeks ago, um, I was actually saddened to hear about the suicide death of, a, of an individual by the name of Stephen, the Twitch boss. I don't know if you know who he is, but he, he ended up being kind of Ellen's sidekick on her uh, talk show. Um, and um, he, w- he was, um, although I, do, I don't really watch Ellen very much, I've seen it a number of different times, more than several times, but uh, it, this, this individual I thought was really fascinating. He was a hip hop dancer, and he was kind of a joy to watch, to see him move and this kind of thing. It just made you smile. Um, and um, he seemed to be a wonderful person uh, on the outside, loved by everybody that knew him, at least all, that, all the testimonies. He had a beautiful wife and family, successful career, very talented. Everything seemed to be going well. And yet something must have been wrong inside. I have no idea. I don't know much about him at all. But I would venture to say that the life that was the light of men was somehow either missing or so damaged that he felt his life could not go on. That's sad. Too many of us find ourselves in that position. And not just those that are without Christ, but also many that are in Christ. Our lives can get so messed up that we can come to believe that they're no longer worth living. You know, I think as we look at the life of Christ, you know, if if you could kind of stand back and just look at what Jesus was really like and kind of describe him uh, uh, or his, his demeanor, his life was never without meaning and purpose. You don't see any despair. What, rather, what you see is meaning, purpose, hope, love, joy. It was painfully difficult at times, um, whether it was the deprivation experienced in the wilderness or being misunderstood and criticized by friends and family, um, the betrayal of his own disciples, being abandoned, humanly speaking, at the cross, but also being abandoned by the Father at the cross and all the suffering that he went through. It's hard to imagine those things. And yet, despite those, his life was always full. That's the life that he can bring to us. It was that light that John says, I think, in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone. That is what was coming into the world at this, part, at this point. Now, the tragic part of the, of the story, as John is, is laying it out before us here, is that, and in fact, he kind of gets ahead of himself a little bit. In, uh, it comes in verse 10 and 11. But he says about Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. One of the commentators on this text talks about that phrase in verse, verse 11, he came to his own, as you could render it, he came home. He came home, and he was not received by his, by, by, by his very, very own. It's the same expression that Jesus uses when, from the cross, he asked the he asked this, the writer of this uh, gospel to take care of his mother. And what the statement is in the text is that John took Mary, Mary to his own home. Same words, basically, that are expressed in, 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 in this text here. The irony is when, John, when Jesus came into the world, as he came into his ministry, 
The world literally did not recognize him. They, will, they were not willing to receive him. They thought of him only as a fellow human being, the boy from Nazareth. They couldn't get their minds around the idea that literally he was God in flesh appearing. He was coming for them. And John closes this section of the gospel, this, the, the prologue, with a summary statement. It's the culmination of, uh, of, of, his, of his first line of argument. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word was with God. It was that word that was, uh, was God himself. It was that word through whom all, uh, everything that was created was created. It was that word in whom there is life, and he was the one that was bringing life. It was that word that is light and gives light to every human being. It's that word that's none other than Jesus himself. That's the primary story of Christmas. God has come for us. Let me talk about two implications to this. And by the way, I'm almost done. So I, I, I tried to make it quick uh, this morning because I knew there'd be children present, but... But just, just a few moments ago, I passed over the verse, verse 12. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's one I usually quote of the King James uh, rather than the New, New International Version, which I, which I usually use. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God, even to them that believe in his name. Let me pick it up at verse 11 again. It says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These two verses express, I think, one of the most profound truths that we can understand. Is that God wants us to become his children again. Our lead pastor, David, talked about this just a couple weeks ago. In fact, he talked about the whole audience as, we're really children all of us are children if, we, if we've come to Christ. But, but what these verses say is that God loves mankind. Jew and Gentile alike, no matter how stubborn we are, no matter how resistant, how rebellious, how flawed, he literally wants to adopt us as his children, to make us his sons and daughters. He's provided us a way to regain that status, to regain that position, and it's through receiving Christ. The primary reason that the Father sent his Son in the world was in order to redeem us, all who, who would receive him. That truth should literally overwhelm us. It should make us cry. It should make us cry with joy, gratitude. It should impact us emotionally. Many times it doesn't because I don't think we really get our minds around it. Um, so one of the things I think that we should um, retain, that we should keep, a, keep, a, keep, keep connected to Christmas is this theme, and you see it reflected in a bunch of the Christmas movies and, and, and uh, a lot of things that, are, that, that, that we have in, in the various specials and that kind of thing, but there's this theme of coming home and being reunited. Um, you know, whether it's with, with George Bailey and it's a wonderful life. By the way, I haven't yet seen it this, this Christmas season. My wife often, I, I think, uh, at times she'll say, are you watching that thing again? And I like to watch it every year. You know, in fact, there's a, whole, there's a whole number of them that I watch over and over again. You know, people might not think this about me, but I think I'm kind of a sucker for all that nostalgia stuff, okay? But something resonates 
in my soul when you have that coming home feeling. And even with Home Alone, I mean, not a great movie, but you know, it, it, it touches you. Or, or, or look at some of the romance movies. I mean, I was touched, I gotta admit that, do you remember the movie, You've Got Mail? I mean, that feels like it's from ancient history now. But, uh, but I end up crying every time that, you know, Meg, Meg Ryan comes around the corner and sees Tom Hanks is the guy, you know, that kind of thing. Or Sleepless in Seattle when they meet at the top of the Empire State Building. I mean, that, that, why does that stuff touch us? Let me suggest that the, the reason why those nostalgic films at Christmas or some of the other things that touch that, that kind of thing is that deep within every human being is the desire to be completely accepted and loved. It is, it's at our very core. No matter how tough we are on the outside, no matter how much we try to hide it from others or even hide it from ourselves, we desperately long to be loved and accepted. When Jesus came home, they didn't receive him. A few did, but most did not. He wants us to come home. And what he's guaranteed is that he will accept us because the the father will accept us because the father sent the son in order to make it possible that we could be accepted by by him. He literally died in our place. He's demonstrated it to us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Christ died for the sinful. He sent his son into the world for us. That's the great mystery. Why would he care about us? Why would he choose to love us? We don't understand it, but that's what's true. That's the real message of Christmas. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you would choose to love people such as us. Lord, as we understand how sinful we often are, how flawed, how we're not the people that you would have liked us to be. We marvel that you would choose to die for us, to sacrifice yourself for us, that we might be adopted as your children again, that we might know that coming home, that we might know that reality of being truly accepted and loved exactly as we are. Father, help us to grasp that truth. Not only those that may not have yet believed in Christ, but those of us who know Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would internalize that truth in such a way that it might overwhelm us once again, that we might experience tears of joy because we know we are loved by you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.